Welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. I'm Tom Street. Today, I'll be talking to Tim Hollow, who's running for the seat of Canberra in the upcoming Australian federal election on the 18th of May. Uh, he's running for the Greens Party, so we'll be discussing the Greens' policies on science and technology-related stuff. Here's the interview. Thanks very much for coming on the show, Tim. Uh, Thanks for yeah, would you like to do a little introduction of yourself? Sure, yeah. So I, um, I've spent 20 years or more really now working for the strongest climate action that we can possibly get. Um, and that's really what's led me to... Um, you know, running for parliament, I think, you know, there's a... There's how, have you been, how have you been doing that, like working towards strong climate action with the Greens? Um, or? Uh, all over the place in, in policy and advocacy and activism. Um, I have, um, I kind of got into it through, you know, climate policy um, and working for the Nature Conservation Council many years ago. I've worked for Greenpeace. I've worked for the Greens um, for a period of time. Um, I, the last bunch of years, I've been running the Green Institute, which is the Greens think tank. Um, and I've worked um, at, you know, community level as well, doing all sorts of things like being involved in establishing the community solar farm and tree planting and, and, and sharing groups and that kind of thing, which I see as also actually climate and environmental activism because it's reducing consumption and building, you know, building community connection, which is, um, which is all relevant too. So, yep. yeah, and that's yep. what's kind of led me here to this point. Okay, right. Okay, so... I wanted to ask you about um, how Greens policy is informed by science. So how do, do the members vote on, on, the, on policy and it's basically based on their scientific views or is there a, um, a mechanism for bringing in scientific expertise to, to generate policy? Yeah, there's absolutely a mechanism for bringing in expertise in all sorts of ways. So the policy has developed, um, the policy has been developing um, over many, many years, of course, the party's the party's now forty years old, um, and so policy kind of evolves um, bit by bit with reviews after every single election. Um, in every case, we bring in expert views um, and we seek to build the policy on the basis of um, expert input. It's then um, workshopped and developed by members and by member committees um, along the way and and then voted on by by the members um, at our national conferences um, as we go through so it's a it's a long process that takes several years each time really to go through um, you know climate policy obviously is guided by um, not only climate science, of course, but also with the advice of renewable energy um, folks as to um, you know, how fast the tra transition can happen, guided by economic policy in terms of how we can make the transition work well and justly. Um, so there's, yeah, there's many, many places for, um, for expert advice, scientists and advice um, all the way through um, as that policy is developed. Okay. Um so what's the Greens' uh, policy towards funding from the government for science research and education? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that, um, you know, again, in terms of, in terms of that expert input, um, we're hearing, um, including from, you know, many members and, in fact, elected representatives, all about how our university sector has been 
torn to shreds over over the last couple of decades um you know massively underfunding um education and research um the greens want to see um a real big boost of funding um to the arc and the nhmrc and other funding bodies um we want to ensure that there is you know what, what are the what, what are those bodies that a the Australian Research Council, the Australian okay. Research Council and the National Health and Medical Research Council, um, which are the, 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 the granting bodies for, for research in Australia that go to, um, you know, to, to academics to, to do a whole lot of the scientific research that goes on in, in this country. Okay. Um, and they, those, those um, councils have been underfunded, um, but they've also been heavily, heavily politicised. So, for instance... There have been a number of, you know, quite a number of years now where climate change research has been systematically removed from um, from the research council grants processes because governments have just said, well, we do, we clearly don't need to research climate because we don't we don't believe it's an important issue. Um, you know, so really sub, sub, substantial and serious political interference. Um, with research grants processes and just underfunding of that research. And that really needs to change. Um, you know, if we are to have, um, if we are to have a, a flourishing scientific um, research community um, and research process in Australia, we need to fund it properly. Okay. And, and um, I believe you've got some thoughts on uh, funding for science, science education at universities or, or is that... Is that wrong? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the one of the really important things in that space is that the Greens um, the Greens want to fund um, support for particularly diversity in um, in science education. We want to see more women um, supported to go into into science, technology, engineering, and maths. Um, okay. How would you do that? From diverse backgrounds um, through a range of processes, um, including you know primarily you know. Um, grants, funds, and and scholarship processes um, to okay. make it more accessible for um, for people from diverse backgrounds that that will yeah that will really support them into that process, um, as well as you know um, you know manage management of um, of how the schools and the research programs are run and things like that because you hear there are terrible stories about the prejudice unfortunately that. Um, that women and people from ethnically diverse backgrounds face in laboratories, for instance. Um, and you want to make sure that they're safe spaces for people to work in. Um, so, yeah, properly properly manage what's yeah. going on in our universities yeah. as well, on research okay. spaces. Yeah, I mean, my, my aunt um, is, has been a scientist for, for many years mm. and that's something she's talked about, problems with that yeah. for females in, the, yeah. in, in laboratories, just like you're saying. Um, so uh, what, what the Greens have been talking about Australia transitioning to a carbon-free economy mm. for years. Mm. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how the Greens envisage that happening? Like what, what's that going to look like? Um, well, look, the primary thing is, is, is transitioning from fossil fuels to renewable energy as fast yep. as we possibly can. Um, and, you know, that's going to, we're already seeing what it's looking like. Uh, in fact, the rollout of renewables um, is just accelerating so fast. Um, I, as I said, I've been working for Climate Action for 20 years or so now. In the mid-2000s, um, 
we were, you know, there was a big campaign to get the Howard government to lift its renewable energy target, which was then 2% by 2020. Um, and the push was to lift it to 10% by 2020. Um, it finally, um, with the Greens and Labor working together, got up to 20% by 2020, and we smashed that target as a country. We're now well over 30, close to 36% renewable energy. So there's a lot of solar farms, there's a lot of wind, there's a lot of bioenergy, there's more and more, um, you know, all, you know not, just, not just hydro, but kind of wave and tidal power. So the wonderful thing about, about a renewable energy network is that it's going to be a whole diverse range of power sources that are going to contribute in all sorts of different ways and, and work together to, to meet our power demand instead of being almost entirely coal. So yeah, we want to see support for the you know the acceleration of the rollout of renewables and the and the the close down bit by bit of the coal-fired power stations around the country. Um, we've got a, a roadmap for that to see each of the coal-fired power stations around Australia closed by 2030, because that's what the science demands. Um, and then, of course, there's electrification of all sorts of other parts of the of the energy network too. So transport um, needs to be electrified, um, and um, heating and cooling needs to be electrified. Um, and yeah, through that kind of process, we'll see the the energy networks across Australia um, move across to renewables. And and it's really you know business as usual now. Um, we're on track to see that happen by the mid-2030s already, really. Um, and we just want to accelerate that a bit. Okay. I spoke to Andrew Blakers, um, who's mm. an expert in the economics of renewable energy transition yeah. on, on the show last year. And something he really stressed to me was the importance of the government uh, funding, or at least getting out of the way of the development of um, new transmission lines to allow yeah, really. the, the connection of... Um, uh, new, like, because the renewables and the and maybe the pumped hydro storage, which he's a bit of adv advocate of, aren't yeah, he, yeah. always going to be in the same places where you had coal-fired plants in the past. Yeah. And so yeah. the government really, he was saying, really needs to facilitate, uh, yeah. the, you know, the building of that new transmission. Um, Absolutely, yeah. The Greens have been talking about that for years. Um, and you know, I I was involved, in fact, writing in writing a policy on that front back in two thousand and seven for the Greens, and yeah, plenty of people have been talking about that, and it's finally happening now through the development of renewable energy zones. Um, New South, the New South Wales, you know, Liberal government, in fact, have recently made some big steps in that process by saying we we need to declare certain areas renewable energy zones where there'll be big developments, and we'll take the the grid the government will pay to take the grid out to those those places so that we can have yeah. the high voltage cables bringing the power into um yeah into the cities because I, I believe there's been some major issues perhaps in in victoria with wind farms going in and then the the transmission's not there so they they can't even yeah. export the capacity that the electricity they're generating yeah and that, that's and the government's government been, yeah, the government's been standing in the way. Um, and yeah, part of the issue is is that of course a whole lot of these networks have been privatized by governments over the 1990s. Um, and yeah, and so they're being run for profit, of course, instead of being run for as a government service, you know, to get energy into people's homes. Um, that needs to be changed. We should be running, yeah, we should be running our grid um, uh, for, for people and for the planet, not for private companies' profits. Okay. Um, 
so I, I've I've been a and and not not that I know much about it, but I've been a lifelong um, skeptic of nuclear power, and and I believe mm-hmm. the Greens have a firm position against nuclear power, um, but I, I've recently started to question whether this because uh, with Bill Gates, Elon Musk coming out like strongly in favour of it. And I think they've proven that they're, you know, reasonably intelligent people that, that <laughs> know about technology. Uh, so, I mean, can you explain why the Greens are so steadfast, like nuclear is, is, is a bad idea? So the Greens' opposition to nuclear power goes back to, to the environmental impact of it and the human impact of it. Um, the risks... Um, you know, risk, as as many people in science will will understand very well, is is a combination of the chances that something will happen and the impact of what happens if it does happen. Um, the thing about nuclear power is that the risks of something going very wrong are actually relatively low, and that's one of the things that a whole lot of people are saying now. The risks of something happening are pretty low. But that's only one half of the risk um, profile. The consequences of something bad happening with nuclear power are absolutely devastating. So we need to we need to think very very carefully about the kinds of consequences that we're willing to face, and particularly, frankly, in the context of the climate crisis, where the world is getting more dangerous and is going to keep getting more dangerous, frankly, over the rest of our lives, because there will be food shortages, there will be water shortages, there will be more resource wars. Um, That's going to be what we're confronting. The more nuclear power that we have, the more fissile material there is out in the world, the more dangerous it's going to get. And we don't think that that's a good idea. But here's the really interesting thing. Nuclear power is the most expensive and the slowest possible solution to the climate crisis. Um, Nuclear power stations in the developed world are consistently, you know, 10, 15 years late in their construction because they're so complex and so difficult to get through and they're such massive infrastructure projects and they're consistently running at billions and billions and billions of dollars over budget. Um, you know, if we're if the question is what's the slowest and most expensive solution to climate change, the answer is nuclear. Um, we could, particularly in a country like Australia where there is no nuclear industry, we could well and truly transform our entire network to 100% renewables before the first nuclear power station is brought online, very very easily. So it's just no solution in Australia, um, and that's before you even necessarily think about the risks. But, you know, what we have to understand is that the waste from nuclear power stations needs to be protected for several times longer than the entirety of of recorded human history so far. Are we really ready to do that? And people then talk about, oh, well, there's, there's, there's different technologies, there's thorium reactors, there's fast breeder reactors. Well, they're all very, very, very early in the planning stages. They're none of them commercially viable yet. Um, let's just move with the solutions that we've got, which are cleaner and safer and cheaper. Yeah, I yeah, I mean, it certainly seems that it's a much harder sell, and especially in Australia, where we don't have a nuclear industry, we've got lots of sun yeah. and wind, and yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess 
you know, a bit, I don't know about it, but I'm more on the fence and say whether Germany should be shutting down its nuclear power plants right now, now like decommissioning them earlier. But that's, I mean, that's not a matter for you to... It's not, no, it's not. It's not a matter for Australia. I mean, I think, you know, to come back to why why are people like Musk and Gates looking at them, um, my answer to that is because what people like that see is a techno fix, which, you know, which is exactly the kind of thing that that they love. Um, And it's also these big wealthy men kind of look at, look at big solutions where you, you know, there's this, there's this funny thing where, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain type of, of kind of value set that certain people have where it's like, if, if you're not blowing something up, then it can't be real. <laughs> you know, um, they look at they look at wind turbines and and solar panels and go, well, they can't possibly be generating that much power because you're not you're not blowing something up. You're not you're not having to to, to dig up these massive mines and and blow shit up in order to in order to create the power. Um, yeah. And I hear that yeah. a lot from people that yeah, oh, you can't imagine that that solar and wind can can actually do the job. Yeah. So I, I genuinely think that's a big part of why the Musks and Gates and folks of this world are looking down that road. Um, well, I, I mean, I, yeah. I, I mean, one 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 argument that I've heard made, I don't know if it's those guys making it, but that um, that coal kills a lot of, you know, it kills far more people than nuclear power does. Uh, and again, that, I mean... You, yeah, but the choice is not between coal and nukes. The choice, yeah. the choice is... Is renewables, <laughs> you know, if the, yeah. if renewables That's, weren't working and we yeah. had to make a choice between coal and nukes, then you go on your risk management. The risks of bad stuff happening with with coal is hundred percent. We know it's happening, and the consequences are massive. We need to get yeah. out of coal. The yeah. risk of something bad happening with nuclear is lower actually than coal, but the consequences are just as bad. So right. why would we be going for that? You know, when when we can to renewables. What, what about in, in, say, countries like Finland or, you know, uh, European countries where they, they don't, perhaps don't have as much space and as much renewable resources as we have? You don't, do you think there's a, a different argument there? Or? I don't think the argument is in terms of space or resources because there is plenty of capacity for wind and solar and wave and run of river and all sorts of renewables um, options. You know, Scotland is well on target to be 100% renewables by 2030, well on target. So, you know, if Scotland can do it, Norway and Finland and Sweden can do it. Um, it's, it, you know, renewables actually are, are an excellent solution no matter where you are in the world. Yeah, I, uh, I'm going to be having an expert on nuclear power um, on this show in a couple of weeks. Uh, Tony Owen, I think, from the, from the ANU. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Is that, do you have any questions? I'm going to be drilling him on, on the, exactly these questions about how dangerous it is. And do, would you have any, anything that, uh, that I should hit him with? Um, I mean, I guess, I guess to me, one of the big questions is, if we're not thinking about it as an alternative between coal and nukes, if we're thinking about it as an as a as the alternatives being renewables and nuclear power, um, should we really be going down the route of a very heavily extractive industry at this point in human history? You know, when we when so so much of um, you know of our economic 
kind of and political progress is towards less and less extractive it needs to be at this point we need to be thinking about renewable resources we need to be working out ways of managing human society without constantly digging stuff up and blowing stuff up um is nuclear the way we want to head at this point in human history shouldn't we be looking down a different route okay i'll put it to him um so Moving on to a, a bit of a different subject. Uh, so I'd like to talk about the Greens ideas about GMOs. And mm. I, I'll just quote to you like a, a line that I got out of um, the Greens policy in this, this area, which I, I thought was a bit extreme. Um, is that living organisms such as plants, animals, and microorganisms are not inventions. Patents on life are unethical and against the public interest. So I believe, you know, we've, we've got patents. If you develop it, you know, breed a new type of blueberry and then you mm. want to claim intellectual public property rights on that, like that's something that, that's commonplace now. Like a lot of the fruit and vegetables we eat would be patented as like this particular variety that has good storage characteristics so you can transport it to the supermarket, taste good, and um, which seems reasonable to me that, that people should be able to... Um, be able to invest in that and then and, and then paid in a particular variety, not every type of blueberry, but just one particular subset of genes. Like what would be one, I guess it's just one very specific type that never would have existed otherwise. And um and 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 the other thing is you know there's the really big example of um GMO organisms. So since the 80s diabetics have been using insulin made from bacteria that have had the human gene for insulin genetically engineered into them before that they're raising like using the the yeah. pancreases of pigs to extract it and i'm not sure why it, you know that's a particular problem but i think insulin became much 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 cheaper after that and yeah. and like, there's no going back i don't think anyone wants to go back yeah i can't give details about that but I, the thing is it's that's just the very beginning of, of, of there's just going to be, from what I understand, the people that work in this area, it's just like there's going to be a huge range of things that like insulin's a good analogy for, like medical products, all sorts of things that we're going to create in factories of genetically engineered bacteria that we brew up in big vats. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I guess it, unless, unless you think the government or something should be in control of it, then it's going to be private enterprise and patents, I'd imagine. I, sorry, so well, I guess, I'm going to yeah. battle on this. We're, we're, no. we're, yeah. yeah, no, yeah. I mean, my, my view and the Greens' view is that those kinds of processes should be in public hands and should be, should be in public control, that the idea that private for-profit corporations should be in control of some of these most fundamental things about how we can eat and how we can survive as humans and a species is is a problem so yeah pe people often raise this idea that well you can't you can't stop the tide you can't stop gmos from being developed no we don't necessarily want to do that absolutely um what we want to make sure is that for for basics of human survival, and this goes this goes across the board. You know, we're talking about this in terms of housing. We're we're talking all the time at the moment about the fact that housing is expensive, ridiculously expensive in Australia, because housing is no longer being treated as a human right for people to have a roof over their heads. It's being treated as as an investment for the wealthy to get even more stinkingly wealthy. Well, surely the same thing goes for um, medication. 
you know, there've been global calls over the last couple of years, of course, very, very loudly for the patents for the COVID vaccines to be put into public hands. Um, because what we're seeing is that rich countries and rich communities in rich countries can afford to get vaccinated. Whereas a whole, you know, swathe of the world, the poorer parts of the world, are not being able to get vaccinated because these are private corporations that are profiting from people's capacity to survive. And yeah, the Greens and, and have a very, very I mean, strong view on that, which is that that should not be allowed. And really, with GMOs, the really big stuff is in terms of staple crops. So we're not talking about a particular type of blueberry here where one company might get to profit from it. The really big problem with GMOs in this space is, for instance, with, with rice and with corn and with wheat, where you've got massively powerful, massively profitable corporations, which are able to muscle their way in to, to whole markets and basically replace existing staple crops with their privately owned ones. And, and then farmers, particularly farmers in the developing world, in India, for instance, are being sued for breach of copyright when they save seeds to try to replant for the next season. You know, this is private corporations and some of the most powerful and wealthy corporations on the planet trying to replace the basics of human survival, staple crops with a private product, which they own the genetic materials of. And to me, that is absolutely dystopian, completely dystopian. Of course, we want scientific development. GMOs are part of that. Of course, they are. But if you want a, a, you know, a short path to a really horrifically dystopian future, allowing private companies to own the basics of human survival is the best way there. Yeah, I, I, I guess I, I can't comment on what you're saying about the, like, uh, the ownership of um, basic crops uh, by big companies. But I, I'm imagining that in the future, you're going to get lots and lots of different companies across the world are going to be developing all sorts of uh, different um, products and chemicals and, and pharmaceuticals, I suppose. So I hate to break it to you, Tom, but that's not how capitalism has ever worked. It's not lots and lots of different companies. It's single corporations. That's what's happening on the internet. That's what's happening. You know, basically it's Monsanto and Bayer. There's two companies that own pretty much the whole lot. There's increasingly few companies that are dominating the entire global you know, medications supply. Yeah. Capitalism works by, by conglomerate, conglomerates and agglomerations of private corporations going down to, you know, to monopolies and duopolies. That's just, it just doesn't work any other way. Look at the supermarkets in Australia. Look at the media corporations. It's, it's a small number of corporations that increasingly get control. That's how capitalism has worked. And, and that's why we need to change that. That's why we need to turn it around and make sure that they don't get control of even more. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, you can have the same problem with governments having a monopoly oh, totally. on power as well, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and so, for instance, like Tesla is now a ginormous company, but... Uh, you know, it didn't seem like any government was going to develop the electric car. Like, I mean, I mean, you guess China maybe could have because they're massive proponents of it now. But um, yeah, I mean, Tesla came, like that. That everyone said you couldn't do it. You couldn't come up against the major car companies and 
Um, and it wasn't, I'm sure it wasn't easy, but, uh, and, and there are new pharmaceutical companies springing up all the time and they often get bought out. They usually get bought out very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, But, but they still have that, there's still that sort of incentive for people, for, for investment to go into that. Right. Yeah. I mean, remember the reason the, it's not that electric cars weren't developed. The reason electric cars haven't actually um, been able to succeed is a combination of two until very recently is a combination of two things. One is that the big dominant internal combustion engine car manufacturers have consistently bought early stage electric car manufacturers and shut them down. And the second is that governments around the world, particularly in the US, Europe and Australia, um, are massively, massively reliant, their political parties are massively reliant on donations from the oil industry um, and have colluded with those car manufacturing companies to basically stop it happening. Um, you know, and collusion is not too strong a word. It is very clear that in, in the US in particular, which of course is the biggest car market by a very long way, and historically has been the case, the role of corporations like Exxon and Texaco um, in ensuring that government regulations do not um, introduce, for instance, car efficiency, car fuel efficiency standards, that um, clean air regulations are rolled back, um, that um, there are fewer and fewer restrictions on where you can put petrol stations, but more restrictions on where you can put charging stations. All of this kind of thing has been a very, very deliberate process of oil corporations and corrupt governments working hand in hand to block the growth of the electric car industry. And it's starting to fall apart um, because, because of the growth of certain companies like Tesla, but also because more and more politics um, is being forced to reckon with this kind of thing. And the voices of the people is, is kind of um, is shifting that dynamic. But yeah, it's not it's not just because you know because people haven't worked out how to build electric cars. It's because they've been stopped, and there's you know there's books and books that have been written on on detailing this history. It's very clear. Um, so say say Australia was to to put in place um, you know a ban on on on. Uh, private ownership of gene sequences or GMOs or, or, or um, uh, particular cultivars of, of, of fruit species, that how, how would you envisage that working in terms of international trade agreements and stuff? It has to be done at a global level. Yeah, Australia can't do it on its own. Yeah, it has to go. It has okay. to go through global processes. Um, yeah. So the, so the Greens wouldn't way. advocate like unilaterally um no australia australia can't do it unilaterally no yeah, it's, okay. it's it's very clear that we can't do that um okay. we could certainly the things that australia can change is that you know one of the one of the things that that the greens find very problematic is that um the csiro the the scientific and industrial research organization which is the government research organization um has been increasingly kind of forced to target its research you know, with the support of private corporations and David Caroli, who used to be the head of the of the CSIRO Climate Research Centre, actually is in the news today condemning that again, how 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 CSIRO has been corporatized. 
So one of the things that we can do is turn around the fact that, for instance, a whole lot of the CSIRO government research into GMOs is being done hand in hand with private corporations. Um, it shouldn't be. There's no reason why government research should be being done with private corporations that are seeking to profit for it. Government research should be publicly owned. Um, and, you know, so we can, for instance, at an Australian government level, say that the research that our government is funding is for publicly owned products, full stop, um, and and turn that around. But in terms of the intellectual property management globally, it's a global system. It has to be, yeah. has to be done globally. Yeah, okay. But you don't think that um, you can have government maybe split the profits with uh, like government funding and and industry, private industry? Or To me, the problem isn't necessarily a profit splitting thing. It's a question of ownership. Um, okay. Is it is it privately owned? Are these basics of human life and of life on earth being privately owned? Um, and is that reasonable? Um, and I think most people actually agree that it's not really reasonable. Okay, so so if the government's going to fund research through CSIRO, then that's it. Like at least then it can have ownership of the stuff that it funds. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And 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 just going back quickly to that that point you made about um, the the COVID vaccines, which were mm. basically funded, I believe, by US the US government. And, and like that seems like a real scandal that. Yeah. The, government, the US government put in billions of dollars. They, they gave it to the companies and developed these vaccines. And now it's 100% privately owned by, um, by uh, Moderna and um, BioNTech the, and Pfizer. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And this is, this is one of the consistent patterns. And the more you look into it, the more you see of these kinds of things. The private corporations say, oh, well, we, we put in all of this money into this, into the research, and therefore we should be able to make the profits from it. Well, time after time after time, you see that's not actually the case. <laughs> the research tends to be funded by governments, either through direct grants or very frequently through tax breaks for research. Um, so government's funding this research anyway, and then the private com companies are walking away with ownership and profits. And that's just, it's just not reasonable. It's just not appropriate. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, is, is there anything else you'd like to say about the Greens policy on, on, on science matters, science and technology matters, Tim? Um, yeah, no, look, I think I think that's that's great. Thanks. It's good to have the opportunity. And I think um, you know, these are really these are some of the you know, some of the deepest conversations that I think we we face as a species over the next little while is how does research get done? On whose behalf is science being done? Um is it being done democratically? You know, who who should be making the decisions? Can we have democratic conversations about the kind of future that we want? You know, we haven't touched on, for instance, um, research into artificial intelligence and things like that. And, you know, how much of the research in, into AI is being done for the public interest and how much is being done for the military industrial complex? How much is being done so that, you know, certain you know, social media corporations can increase their profits, you know, those kinds of questions, I think, are some of the, the, the biggest and deepest that we need to face. And, and they're not actually scientific questions, they're ethical and political questions. Um, but in our current system, we're not even getting the chance to actually talk about. Um, it's, just, it's just assumed that this stuff gets done for private profit, even when 
when you dig into it, as I say, <laughs> it's not the private corporations that are that are actually leading it. Right. So, yeah. Big questions. Okay. Um, well, uh, so do you want to talk about artificial intelligence development in, in Australia, or leave it, <laughs> not necessarily in more detail? Just kind of raising it as another one of those, yeah. another okay. one of those really important questions that, yeah, that we need to dig into over time. Okay. Yeah. But, well, yeah. Um, I have yeah. To, I have to move on, I'm afraid, because I've got to okay. be meeting shortly. Well, yeah, thanks yeah. so much for coming on the show and uh, good luck in the election. With it, You're running yeah, for the seat of Canberra. Uh, I am. You're Tim Hollow running for the Greens. Yeah, thanks very much for coming on the show, Tim. Thanks a lot, Tom. Good on yeah. you.